0: You're listening to Guess What I Learned Today, presented by Archon Forensic Engineers. On today's episode, I have the president of Archon, uh, Sean Jay, on the podcast, and we uh, sit down and we talk about all the different parts and aspects of structural uh, and civil engineering. Really great podcast, guys. He's got a lot of wealth of information. So sit back, relax, enjoy the podcast, and uh, thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Sean. I just first of all, I want to thank you for being on the third episode of Archon's series of educational podcasts for our listeners uh, out in the OIAA world. Uh, it's great to have you guys on for this year. We're loving it. It's a great benefit for the uh, the industry as a whole, but especially adjusters and new lawyers. And just I think it gives a lot of insight into what you guys do uh, as forensic and civil engineers. But I also think it gives a real great insight into what Archon does. So, first of all, for those people that don't know much about you, specifically, or Archon, maybe you can just kinda tell us a little bit about both. Well, Hi Terry, thanks for having us on today. I'd love to discuss that with you. Um, at Archon, we're a multidisciplinary
1: uh, company. So we have electrical, we have fire, we have mechanical, and then my area, ec- area of expertise, of just civil and structural. So we have a multitude of staff that uh, has that range of experience that can help insurance companies, uh, adjusters and lawyers. We also offer um, other other services through our partners like environmental, geotechnical or lab testing and things like that. So my specific role at Arcon is threefold. I'm actually the president. Um, I'm also the practice lead of the civil and structural engineering group here at Archon. And I also, uh, I'm a practicing forensic engineer, so I actually do work as well. So I I basically wear three hats here in the company.
0: So you're a busy guy. Yes, I am. (laughs) And things haven't really slowed down with the pandemic. They've just just changed from what I see.
1: Yes, uh, we thought with the pandemic that it was going to uh, slow down, but the opposite happened for me. I haven't had a break since the pandemic started, which is good for business. It just may not be so good for your uh, your mental uh, well-being, but uh, we cope. Um, we're hoping this, we get through all this, and we'll have a nice break at the end.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I love talking to you guys. It's really good. I mean, I th- that's kind of a great overview, and I love um, – you know, talking with Randy and about your, your company, but what really prompted Archon to get this message out to the market? Like, you know, why do people need to know what engineers do? Right?
1: Well, the idea has been simmering on the back burner for some time with us. And we've always been active in writing articles, making presentations to adjusters and lawyers, but those are often on specific topics or types of losses. So we thought there was a need for some basic education regarding what engineers do, how they do it, and why they do it, and when to use an engineer, what to expect from an engineer's work, and we believe that's increased significantly with the majority of the insurance industry participants working remotely and not engaged with colleagues in the office. So we find that newer adjusters would find the podcasts pretty, pretty uh, interesting as far as information goes. Uh, as well, we we believe they may need the newer types of adjusters. learn may need some education on the types of losses and when and when not to actually use a forensic engineer.
0: Well, it, it's funny that you say that. I mean, I was just at an OIAA meeting for the executive uh, yesterday, and we were talking about actually, you know, listenership and. Um, just people engagement with the website and all the different platforms, the social media platforms, and that's up. So I agree with you. I think the remoteness of people working from home and not having the day-to-day interaction in an actual office setting really changes things for people. And I think they're looking for new content all the time. I think we're becoming a really content-driven industry for sure. So let's, let's dig into this. What does a forensic civil and structural engineer do in the context of an insurance claim? Like, what do you guys do? Okay, well, civil engineering is, is, a, is a type of engineering, and structural is a
1: subgroup inside civil engineering. So civil engineering mostly refers to uh, buildings, uh, environment, uh, roads, bridges, you know, roofing, uh, exterior building envelope, um, anything to do with buildings and infrastructure. So uh, it's pretty wide, uh, but there's also, like I said, subcategories, structural environmental is a subcategory. You've got geotechnical is a subcategory and things like that. Um, So civil structural, I'm a civil engineer first, but my my experience is mostly in structural engineering. So I deal mostly with buildings and infrastructure. so what we're trying to do, is for, from a civil and the structural forensic engineering point of view, for insurance companies, we investigate their losses. So whether it be, you know, buildings damaged by vehicle impact, fire, uh, you know, wind, flooding. So we try to find out. Uh, most of the time is just to figure out the cause of the loss, so they can determine whether or not there's coverage. The next thing is okay. So maybe there's not coverage, um, but now they need to fix it. So how do we fix it? And then So we do repair drawings and apply for permits and things like that to help them, you know, get the building back to its pre-loss condition. The other thing we do is, uh, you know, maybe on a building a roof leaked or a component failed, Uh, maybe somebody was negligent in installing something or doing something, so we also help on the subrogation side as far as determining the root cause to see, like I said before, whether it's a covered loss or whether or not maybe somebody did something and then maybe they'll subrogate for that loss. So we're, we're instrumental in determining what happened and whether or not um, it's a cover loss and whether or not they can subrogate the claim. So that's mostly building fires, equipment, things like that, flooding. Um, so the other thing I also do as a civil engineer and structural is uh, building code issues. So a lot of slip and falls and injury claims go back to the building code Uh, so where the stairs the right uh, rise and run meaning the height of the stair and the length of the tread Um, you know sidewalks is there a a raised lip or something or is there something that was built in property that caused caused somebody to hurt themselves so we do that as well to determine um, you know if the building code failure is is it, you know, did it meet code, number one, or two, wasn't constructed improperly, or did it deteriorate and cause a condition that allowed somebody to trip and fall? So that's basically in a nutshell how we, we uh, work with insurance companies to help them win civil and structural type losses.
0: So how do you go about your work? Like what kind of projects, or sorry, procedures and resources do you actually use um, in doing this?
1: So the first thing is the the adjuster will call us uh, or the lawyer and and sort of pick our brains and say, okay, I've got this situation or this loss. Can you help me? And sometimes it might be as simple as a phone call to say, I looked at your stuff. You know, I don't think you have anything here as far as uh, you know liability or negligence or cause. Uh, that's uh, on that side. But on the the uh, the cause extent for damage and that, we would collect the information from them, like, was has a contractor been out? Have they taken measurements? Have they taken photographs? You know, before and after pictures? Anything that will help us before we get to the site. Like, if there's a wind damage, you know, what was the wind that day? We'll check and see, you know, what direction it was, how high the wind speed was. So we use like, Environment Canada to get that information. Um, and then, when we get to the site, you know, we use a variety of tools. You know, your 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 measuring tape, which is your handheld measuring tape. You know, we may need a ladder to climb on the roof, um, um, and then you know, a level to find out. You know, somebody said their building's falling over, so is it out of plumb? Is it not straight anymore? So we use that. And then lately, um, we just purchased what was called a LiDAR um, piece of equipment from Leica. And it basically does a three D scan of the whole building, inside and out, and um, and also we've used drones to you know look at roofs, and if we can't get on the roof or or you know there's no access, then we use a drone to go on the roof. Um, and if in a, in a pedestrian type incident, you know if whether it was a slip a slip and fall or trip and fall, we go out there and measure. So um, we may ask to be do to do a slip test. So we have a machine that does slip testing. It's called the BOT3000. It's like a robot. It just sits on the ground and it travels along and measures the friction capacity of the floor. Another thing we find useful is we have like a thermographic camera. So somebody may be complaining about leakage in their walls so we can scan the walls to see, you know, where the leakage may be coming from. The same for roofs, you know, flat roofs are a big concern for people. So we may scan the roof um, at dusk to see, you know, where the heat's coming up from the roof. And usually uh, an area that's leaking, um, it'll take on water. So when it heats up during the day, it holds that heat. So when you scan the roof at dusk, you'll see that heat reflected back with the thermal camera. So we, we use a variety of tools, um, you know, like I said, the, the main thing is the old measuring tape. That's the first thing you start with. But there's a lot of other tools we can use and we do use them. So. That that's basically
0: it. Okay, I've got a couple of questions, but I'm going to hold off on one because I, I'm going to jump back to what you said before about the building code, and then we're going to move to three items that you talked about. But let's talk about the building code. Do you look at the building code as it was today, as it was on the date of loss, or as it was built? Or do you have to look at all of it? So,
1: Well, that depends on the type of loss, Terry. So, so say it, it, it was a, uh, a slip and fall.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask. So slip and yeah,
1: fall. On, on is, a set of stairs. Yeah. So first we, we find out when was the building built. So it was built in 1950. So basically building codes aren't retroactive. So if it was built in 1950 and nothing's been done to those stairs from 1950 to present date, you have to determine what was the condition requirements at the time of original construction. However, if somebody's gone in and renovate that building and have taken the stairs out and put new stairs in, then you have to figure out what was the code requirement at the time that was done. So you have to use that code. Sometimes we use current codes just to reinforce what's been done in the past or just to confirm, hey, you know, we can't find the old codes related to this, but guess what? It still meets current codes, so it's irrelevant. So those are the three scenarios
0: we deal with. All right. Well, that answers that for me. But let's, let's move on to the, some of the things you mentioned here. You talked about LiDAR, you talked about drones, and you talked about uh, thermography cameras. Yep, um, yes. These these are pretty new tools, I guess, for structural engineers, right?
1: Well, they've been around, you know, they're fairly new. I'd say in the last five years or so, I mean, uh, at one time people didn't use that. They used, you know, for roofs they used cut tests or you know, cut tests, so that was the uh, standard a number of years ago, and as technology increases they come up with these nice toys and gadgets that make life a little easier for people and so you kind of have to try to keep up with that um if you just show up with a knife to cut a hole in something and somebody's got a thermal camera you look kind of antiquated but sure. uh, so you know you have to keep up with the times um you know it uh, it costs money to do that and we have to budget for that so we do it um we just want to be um, you know on par with everybody else, um, it's not leading edge, but if everybody's using it, everybody should use it. So we uh, we go and we buy the
0: tools as the times change and, and the technology changes. So we try to keep on top of things. So we try to make sure that we're up to date on our, uh, on our technical equipment and that. And I'm assuming you're not just buying drones that you buy at Toys R Us, right? These are actually high-end type drones, right? They're just not...
1: Well, they're not high-end drones. They're a drone that has camera capabilities and you have uh, remote camera and things like that. So the, the drone is a, a little bit more expensive than what you'd buy at, uh, at uh, Toys R Us, but it's a similar concept. It's just it has more gadgets for us to
0: use. Yeah, and, so, and is that the same with your, la- your LiDAR?
1: Well, the LiDAR is it's another tool. So basically it's a 3D. It sends a laser around, a 3D laser around a room. it can capture every detail of that room and then later you can scale it off so you don't have to you know go measure every detail and take every detail down it's almost like a a a 3d picture at the end you can walk through it uh, you can pick off measurements wherever you want so it's just it's a likeness of the room you're standing in so it's almost like you know those video games where you walk into rooms and you can do all kinds of it's the same idea except it's just a little thing you put on a tripod and it spins around a laser and it measures millions and millions of points around the room. And what it does is it captures everything. So if you go and look at it on the computer, it's as if you're standing in the room, but the room may have been 10,000 miles away and you just were given a picture of the room in, in the uh, 3D model. So we can do a walkthrough. So if we can do a whole house, a whole building, so you can walk from room to room to room. I mean, real estate agents would be using a cheaper version of that called Mataport, where it just takes pictures and you can it stitches together. But this is like a seamless system that it takes so many points. It's so real. The, the margin of error on the measurement is like minuscule. So it's very high-tech and it's uh, very expensive. But we felt the need to get it um, to help service our clients better. Um, it helps with... Uh, with um, you know measuring for reconstruction and things like that, where you know if you measure by hand, you may misread a measurement or you may not take the proper measurement. You go, oh, I got to go back to the site. You know that costs more for the client. Um, so this is all-encompassing. We capture everything, and then we we can basically go through and look at it pick off measurements we need, make floor plans, uh, 3D renderings, anything. It's very powerful.
0: Can it be used outside, Sean?
1: Yes, it can. Um, You can use it outside as well. Um, And we've done that. So we've taken elevations of buildings. You know, you can do topography for, uh, you know, grounds and things like that. So it's it's a pretty versatile piece of equipment.
0: Well... The, the reason I'm asking is, is it similar to what the police would refer to as a total station for when they're doing an accident reconstruction?
1: No, the total station is a survey equipment. So the total station, it measures points in space, singular points. So it doesn't, it doesn't give you a 3D model. So we have a total station here that we use for accident reconstruction. And that just gives you, uh, you have to hold a survey rod and measure from the machinery to the rod. Or you can have a robotic station where you set up the station and you run around with the rod and it takes measurements. But it only takes point measurements on the ground or, you know, vertical, wherever you put the thing. So it's very limited. It's more like a 2D type um, measuring device. It just gives you, and all they're really concerned about most of the time is just the roadway the the plan of the roadway and maybe the elevation. Yeah. They're not. They don't care about the surrounding trees and all that. But we actually used the lidar recently in a case where somebody was hit by a truck, and we actually went to the intersection and um, just used the lidar to capture everything in the intersection and down the street and all that. So now we have we have the actual points of that intersection. We have. All the data, all the measurements that can be used in action reconstruction. Um, you can do the same thing with a total station, but you're only going to get the 2D on the road. This way, we got, you know, the light poles, the trees, any fences, any 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 information like maybe there's some blind spots where you can't see down the road. So it's it's more it's more sophisticated.
0: It's the um, evolution.
1: Yes. Yes. So this, maybe the fire, or sorry, the police department may eventually go to this. Um, I don't know, but um, we find it's uh, it's a very powerful tool, and that's why we bought it. Yeah,
0: it sounds fantastic. Um, now, I, that answers a lot of things, and I love your answer about video games. So actually, you know, being the person kind of looking, it's, uh, I think it's POA, point of like point of view, so it's or POV, so it's yep. literally your point of view. So you're turning your head and you're seeing everything in that point of view. So that's yeah, great. So, yeah,
1: it's 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 so those video games that you put those three D those those uh, goggles on and you're in the in the scene and you look around. That's basically what it is. Um, except you're sitting in front of your
0: computer screen doing it. You're not you're not projecting yourself into the uh, into into the, the scene. The image itself. But what you're
1: yeah. Doing is you're actually, you're able to look and see everything. That's awesome. So so it's very powerful, and that's why we bought it, uh, because we believe it's going to help us immensely and help our clients. Um, Obviously, it's going to take less time to do measuring of a building, so that'll be able to pass the savings on to our client. And that's, you know, that's mostly what insurance companies are looking at. They're looking at cost savings. So if we can do things quicker and less expensive for them, it makes them happier in the long run.
0: So, and and that comes to my next question. So there is always a cost factor. So why wouldn't an adjuster just hire a home inspector or use a reconstruction project manager to assess like the integrity of a building or a structure? Why, why would they use a, a civil and structural engineer? Well, most of the time, like a, home inspector they just do superficial inspections so they'll just
1: look at you know i mean anybody can do that you can walk in and say i don't see any cracks okay great i write that down there's no cracks um (laughs) and you go outside and go no nothing's wrong they don't have um, x-ray vision neither do we but um we um we delve into a little further so if we do see a crack Uh, we we expand on it and say, okay, what's causing this crack? So most of the time, a home inspector will write a report and he'll say, there's a crack, get a structural engineer to look at it. So they don't go deeper than just visual observations. Um, Now the other thing, when you get um, reconstruction project managers or insurance industry contractors, they're looking at fixing things. So they may from experience know a lot, but most of the time they say, look, you got an issue here. I'm not the expert, call an engineer. So, peek back to engineering. So, why are we experts? Well, we went to school for a number of years to learn engineering, you know, learning the basics of engineering um, in the practical sense um, as well as the theoretical sense.
0: And then, you know, we have to go through training to become an engineer. So just because you graduate from a four-year program in engineering doesn't mean you're an engineer automatically. You have to go through experience um, and then apply to the professional engineers of Ontario to get your professional engineering designation. Wow, okay.
1: And as engineers, we're held to a high standard. So, um, and that's why we have professional liability insurance, because if we make a mistake... You know, it causes uh, you know a failure or a loss to somebody because of our lack of, of knowledge and/or uh, our, our, an opinion we give that may be wrong. Then that protects sort of the public against um, you know shoddy people that that you know just give uh, cause assessments. Oh, it's caused by this without going any deeper into why it's co- what caused it. So that's why we carry professional uh, liability. And we focus on um, failures related to the insurance claims. And um, so for civil and structural, that's like I said before, that's buildings. So anything related to buildings, structures, infrastructure, that's sort of what we deal with. Um, and, and one other thing that engineers have that most professionals don't, unless you're a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor, is we have uh, what's called a professional responsibility or an ethical responsibility. So, if we find an unsafe condition in a house, we can't ignore it and just go on with our business and walk away. We have a duty as a professional engineer to notify either the owner, you know, the building department, or somebody that you know you've got a situation that a hey, your house could collapse, your building could collapse, somebody could get hurt. Um, so, we have a professional obligation and, and an ethical obligation to you know, tell people
0: this. So that's in a nutshell why, you know, professional engineers um, are, are preferred when you're doing this type of work. You know, we carry the insurance. We're professional. We're ethical. Not to say that other people aren't, but their experience is sort of superficial. They can't go in depth into specific things. They can give you an off the cuff uh, opinion, but they'll say, well, if you want a deeper opinion, go hire an engineer. So I find that with home inspectors and insurance contractors, they'll give what, based on their industry experience, what they think, but then they can't go any deeper than that. So what they'll say is, you better hire an engineer if you want to know more. And we find that a lot that, you know, we're referred to um, by contractors that say, you know what, I gave them my sort of off-the-cuff opinion, but they want, you know, a deeper uh, explanation of this. So, we have recommended you. So that's what we do. Their $2 opinion. Or 10 cents, whatever you yeah. want. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always I had a friend that always said, uh, I'll give you a $2 opinion. I go, why $2? He goes, well, that'll buy you that and a cup of coffee. Yeah. Doesn't not even do that anymore. <laughs> no. Nope. $10 so, opinion now. Yeah. So, okay, so that makes sense. But I'm assuming not every property claim or every slip and fall requires an engineer. When should a claims professional engage an engineer? Well,
1: that that's a good question, Terry. Because we have people that call us and they relay, so that be an adjuster, um, a lawyer. They'll call me and say, "I've got this situation." So you say, "Okay, tell me more." So they tell you what they have, and and you know, I think I need an engineer, but I have the situation. You know, can you help me? I'm looking for this. So most of the time, um, you know, we welcome people calling us because not every time you need an engineer. Um, so they'll call you and give you the scenario of what they're dealing with, and sometimes just listening to what they say, you can give almost give an opinion over the phone sometimes, or you say this is what I would do, but you know you may not find anything. So do you really want to spend the money on an engineer to do an investigation, which, based on your explanation to me, is not going to warrant any any usable information that's going to forward your your claim. So. We can triage it for them, so either through myself and structural or our project coordinator or other st- structural me- uh, staff members, we can provide advice and guidance to them right from the start. So like this week, I had a call from a lawyer, and she said, oh, I need an expert in you know corrosion of manhole covers. Well, there's no such thing as an expert in, co- in corrosion of manhole <laughs> covers, but there's metallurgists. Yeah. There's also civil engineers that deal with, you know, roadways and sidewalks. So between the two, we could probably help her with why did it corrode and was it installed properly? So you get two different people with different disciplines that can help solve her problem. But after speaking with her, um, you know, I give her some ideas like this is where you could go, but you have to decide, you know, we'd love to take your assignment and love to take your money and at the end maybe be no further ahead. But here's where we would go, and this is what I would do, and then you got to decide if that's going to help you or not. So if it does help you, then call us back, and we'll help you. If not, then you know at least you know you've got some uh, your two dollar <laughs> advice uh, for free. Um, so we we tend to do that with all of our clients. We we encourage them to call in. Um, they may not know they need an engineer, or they may say, "Hey, I don't know if I need an engineer on this claim." let me explain it to you, you know, what can you do for me, or is there anything that can be done? And nine out of ten times, yeah, we could probably do something, but there's the one out of ten where we say, you know what, you know, you're probably not going to get any more information by hiring us. We can do the legwork, but we don't anticipate we're going to come up with anything better than you already have. So why spend the money? Um, But if you want to, we'll be more than happy to help you, and uh, they, they say, okay, we'll check with my principal and we'll get back to you sometimes they call back and say my principal wants to proceed and other times they say sorry that was enough information you go great okay we'll catch you on the next one then
0: so when an adjuster or a lawyer or insurance professional in some degree engages um archon what outcomes can they expect and not expect like can you give me a little bit further in that information (laughs) Well, it depends on what
1: they're looking for. I mean, if if they call us and and say, you know, I have this loss, I want to know what caused it. Well, you can't determine what caused it until you delve into the investigation. Um, And most of the time when we do the investigation, you know, you can't be 100% positive certain things. So uh, sometimes it's a possibility, but other times, you know, when you're dealing with legal situations, I go on the basis of... of, um, you know uh, the balance of probabilities, so greater than 51%. So if you're in a civil court and you come up with a cause of a loss, you can't just say, "Oh, this is a possible cause." Well, possible is, yeah. Well, it's possible a meteorite could hit me tomorrow, um, but that's not probable. So we deal more on probabilities than we do possibilities. So we try to get to the root cause of of the the matter and say, "Okay." What's the, on the balance of probabilities, what caused this loss to occur? And we can give our client that information. Now, sometimes in the fire field, it's undetermined, so there's no balance of probability there. So you just say, we couldn't find it. Not to say that there wasn't a cause, it just wasn't readily visible or definable or determinable. So that's from the fire point of view. From a civil structural point of view, you know, building collapses. Well, where do you start? You know, underneath that rubble, there's there's a potential cause. So sometimes you'll sit there, and I've had this, where we just slowly pick the building off until we get to the bottom. We look at the members. Is that bent because of the collapse, or was it a cause of the collapse? So you meticulously go through things to try to find the root cause. And sometimes you don't, and sometimes you find the, uh, the needle in a haystack or the smoking gun. Um, and th- those are very pleasurable moments because, you know, eureka! I found it. Um, and then, then you have other engineers will go in and they'll either agree with you or disagree with you. So then that's where the balance of probability comes in. So you may see two potential areas of, of collapse, but what's what you know what what occurred first to cause the building to come down, or was it a result of the building collapse? So you have to wade through all that. So, um, so. But when it comes to reconstruction, it's it's pretty clear. We we know the building's damaged, and we know how to fix it. Uh, so cause investigations are different than reconstruction. So the cause, like I said, we go and try to figure the root cause, and sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't. And then, like, it's, like we discussed previously, if we find the root cause, is that a design defect? Is that a construction defect? Or is it a material failure, or did somebody alter something that caused a weakness in the structure that uh, it became overloaded maybe too much snow too much wind and or it's dilapidated the point that it was going to blow over anyways before the wind even came um, so things like that we those those are the cause investigations we do for a client but on the reconstruction side we know we know what the damage is we know how to fix it so then what we do is we spend the time um, you know, doing the drawings. So that's where the lidar comes in. Is you know, it gets us a footprint of the whole building. It gives us elevations. It gives us that. It helps us sort of get the information we need to reconstruct the building quicker than going out and measuring it by hand. So we use that to help us with our CAD drawings, and then we specify you know what needs to be fixed. Now, when you come to reconstruction, there could be some delays. Um, You know, doing the drawings are one thing that could take a few weeks, but then we have to deal with the municipal government, so the building departments. Some building departments are better than others, some you put your permit in, you get it back in a week. Others, you know, could be a month, uh, whether it's residential or commercial. And we're constantly, um, you know, fighting with them to, you know, issue it fast so that we can, so the client can get on with the repairs through through their insurance vendor or their contractor or vendor. Um,
0: so, so I'm going to ask you just and stop you there because I have a question, and I don't want to forget it. Whose requirement it is or whose job is it to get the permit or pull the permit for the job? Is it you guys? Is it the contractor? Um, is it the insured? Who, who actually takes control of that?
1: Anybody can do it. The insured can do it. The contractor can do it, or we can do it. However, in the past, the insurance companies used to ask the contractor to do it, and what would happen is the contractor would go to the building department, throw the drawings down, and they'd ask him a million questions, and they didn't have the answers. So they couldn't apply for the permit. So they said, you know what? It's better you talk to the engineer, because so, he knows all the answers to the questions they have yeah. or the requirements to apply for the permit. So it's better for them to do it. So although the contractor's, some do it and some like to do it. Others just say, you know what, I don't want to be involved in this because I'm, I've got to go there three times to get the information. And because we've been doing this for a number of years, we sort of anticipate what they want. But the problem is they always ask for something additional that you can't anticipate sometimes. So it takes time and effort to do that and it increases obviously the time and cost. Now the homeowner, they could take the permit drawings and go apply for the permit on their own as well but they may have some questions as well. So we've been found over the years that the insurance company just says, you apply for the permit. So we apply for it. We do all the legwork, take the drawings, answer all the questions. The problem with, you know, at one time when I I started this, you'd wrote a a one-page letter that said I need to replace three joists on the second floor, and they say, okay, here's your permit. Now it's become... Um, not only do I need to plan on the second floor, they also want a plan on the first floor. Oh, and they also want a site plan to show where the boundaries are, how close the building is to the property, wow. and they want elevations. And I'm like, why do you need all that? I'm telling you, there's three joist damage. Just fix them. So it's evolved from a simple exercise to a bureaucratic exercise over the years, and sort of we sort of wade through that bureaucratic stuff that contractors either can't do or don't like to do, and homeowners. Unless they're a very type A personality who wants to take on the job, they defer to us to do all that stuff for them. And like I said, although we've been doing it a number of years, it always surprises me, some of the requests I get from the building department on, hey, I need this. And you're like, what does that have to do with this
0: Any, anyway? Yeah, just weird stuff. But it, but what I, I want the listeners to really understand from what you're saying is you guys are full service. You're just not making drawings or making reports and stepping back. You're seeing this project through to the end if that's what's required, right?
1: Yeah, so what we, what we also do is, so we'll apply for the permit, and then other things we do is, Depending on the building department, some building departments, whether they're small town or large city, they may not need uh, an inspection by us while the work's being done, and they do take care of it all themselves. That's usually smaller municipalities. The bigger municipalities like Toronto, Mississauga, they want you to come and look at it and sign off on it and provide a general review letter at the end to say that, I saw the construction is in general conformance with the drawings. So they,
0: even though they take permit fees, they want to absolve themselves of any responsibility for the finished product. So they tend to ask for this, but smaller municipalities, they just do it on their own. Oh, okay. But,
1: but we're there to help the client, or any any um, hiccups they may have. Um, but that's what we find with larger municipalities, want to shift the liability to the engineer. Smaller municipalities, they got nothing to do, so they, they just like to take the job and go do their inspections. The only, they'll only call you on a rare occasion if they have a question about some detail you put on a drawing. So there's there's two different worlds out there as far as how much service you need to provide or how much is required. Uh, so if it's required by the building department for us to do this, then we offer that to our client, and our client uh, will pay for that. On other cases, it's like we don't need to be involved, but if you want us to be involved, we will. So it all depends on who you get um, with respect to the municipality.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to say, and it comes down at the same time, like you said, to cost, right? So then you've got a budget. So I'm assuming most of your jobs are done based on a scope of work and then a set budget, right?
1: Yeah. So we. So what will happen is, you know, the 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 insurance company or the adjuster will ask us, okay, what do you think we need? We need. Number one, we need you to go out and assess this, the extent of damage. Two, what to, you know, what needs to be done. And three, you know, sometimes they want drawings just to for costing purposes to put it back the way it was. Other times they want reconstruction drawings that uh, you know they, they want to put it back to today's standards. Some people have code upgrade insurance. Some people don't. So depending on what the requirements are, we'll either do you know, a basic drawing to say, here, here's here's what was there. This is used for the contractor to provide, a, like, a control estimate to say, here, this is how much it costs to put that building back the way it was. And then if they don't have code upgrade, then the insurance company says, that's all we're giving you. If you, And then if they ask us to do the, the uh, building permit drawings, there may be some code upgrades in there that the insurance company is not going to cover. So then the difference the homeowner has to come up with, or they just take the money and run. Um, and some people do that. They'll, they'll take it. They'll do their own drawings and do their own permit uh, and then do what they want. Um, so we, we basically have to give them a budget that says, this is what we anticipate for this stage. And I usually do it in sections. So the investigation, um, initial stage, and or reconstruction stage drawing. So we give a budget. Now, if we end up with issues, like I said before, the building department now wants, you know, we, you know, I only had three joists on the second floor. They now want floor plans. They say, you know what, I don't think it's needed. I think it's pretty basic, but they want it. Now we have to increase the budget to do what they want. I mean, we've dealt with them over and over again, and we try to fight them. And it's, it's, you ever try to fight City Hall? It's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard. <laughs> so we try to, you know... We won't just blindly say, "Okay, do this." We will try our best to eliminate un- any unnecessary costs for our client. So sometimes they ask for a survey because this building building was built in the 50s and they don't have a survey on file. Well, I don't care if you don't have a survey. It was built in the 50s. What do you think? They picked it up, and moved it two inches. So things like that, they're just it just doesn't make sense. That why are we unnecessary? Why does my client have to pay three thousand dollars. To satisfy you that the building hasn't moved in 50 years. Yeah. That's because they want something on file. So things like that, we fight it, and we go to the managers and things like that. But at the end of the day, sometimes we get, uh, you know, vetoed, and it's just like, okay, we go back to our clients, and say we tried our best. You know, this is what they want. What do you want us to do? You know, here's the added cost to do all this. I know it should, we shouldn't have to pay this, but if you want to move forward with this, we have to we have to bite the bullet and do it.
0: Yeah, it's kind of the end of the day. Sometimes it's just easier to, to pay it and move on.
1: Yeah. I mean, we fight it every – I mean, I've been fighting the billing department for years. I mean, you know – Especially if they're not
0: going to give you a permit, right?
1: Yeah, that's it. You won't get a right? permit unless you adhere to their requirements. Yeah. The so. problem is it's counter staff doesn't always know. They just have a checklist. So some of the stuff's not even required for a fire damage permit, but they ask for it. So then that's when I go over their head to the manager and say, listen, this is a fire damage repair. It's not a new construction. Why are you asking for all this other stuff? Well, they shouldn't. Well, I said, they are. Yeah. So you got to be willing to you know, push the envelope there and say, listen, I know I don't need this for this job. Why are you asking for it? And all the clerk at the desk can say is, well, I have a checklist, and it says I need it.
0: Ah, okay. So, I mean, that's good to know because you know enough to push back, whereas a contractor or the insured not going to know that, and they may end up having to go and get permits or get drawings unnecessarily and just increase costs again, right? Yeah, so, that,
1: that happens a lot.
0: Yeah. So one thing we I heard you touch on when you were talking about fires, and this has become a real point of contention with people now, is air quality testing and water quality testing. Can you touch on that a little bit? I know we're talking about civil and structural, but I'd really like if you could touch on that, because I know you guys are involved in that as well.
1: Yeah, so what we do is, we don't do it personally, so what we'll do is we'll engage a third party on behalf of our client, or some of the insurance companies already have relationships with some of those third-party environmental companies um, that do air quality mold testing asbestos testing and uh, and uh, you know water quality and that so if our client doesn't know anybody we can say to them either we'll refer you and you can deal with them directly or we can retain them on your behalf and ma- manage them for you so some some say well I know them I'll go call them and some say um, you know let us do that so what we'll do is I had a recent one so it was a um, sort of a, a semi-detached house, and it was an older house. So on one side, the guy was dem- demolishing it. He didn't have a permit. He stripped everything down, all his old lath and plaster, and the party wall between the two houses was paper-thin, and a lot of dust went from one side to the other. Well, the first thing they think is, what's this dust? And I'm my, my, my spidey senses go up and say, asbestos. So I tell the adjuster, listen... Don't let them stay there. You need to test it. So we go in and test it. Sure enough, it just us. So now we're into cleaning. So now you have to get an environmental company to go out there and clean up the dust, clean the furniture, clean everything. And then I advise the adjuster that the next-door neighbor has to get a building permit to do his repairs, and he has to reinstate that party wall so that it's, it's, it's fire barrier, air barrier, everything. Um, you know, so that's protecting not only the insurance company, but their clients. So th- that's, that's sort of the air quality and, or this, the testing same hat, same thing for mold. You know, we see mold, ask us what caused it. Well, everybody knows it's moisture, <laughs> darkness and, yeah. uh, and food source, right? So, um, we know what caused it. Now the question is, you know, how do we remediate it? So we would, we would work with a partner that would specify, you know depending on how large it is, what, what type of remediation is required. So we again help our client to go there. Now the air quality tests for mold would be the same thing. They monitor the mold spore level in the house compared to an outdoor source to see you know if there's a relative difference in how high the, uh, the, uh, the mold count is inside. So those are, those are some of the environmental things we test on. And, and the other thing, you know, I told you we did geotechnical. So say we have a soil loss, a collapse of a wall or something, um, so we'll get the geotechnical to do the soil tests. Um, you know, if we're doing reconstruction on a commercial building, we may need concrete tests uh, as the new concrete goes in. So we use testing companies as well to help us with all the various tests we need to do. Um, so that's, I think that covers most of it. Any other questions?
0: No, I think that's great. I think it's a lot, and I think adjusters, lawyers, and whoever else been listening uh, have got a real earful today. I mean, that really takes me from A to Z on what you guys do with regards to the civil and structural piece. Um, thanks a lot. I mean, that's great. Okay, Kerry. Well,
1: thanks for having us, and um, enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Yeah, you as well. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Terry.